Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Introduction to Thus Spake Zarathustra. A book for all and none. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. Introduction by Mrs. Foster Nietzsche. How Zarathustra came into being. Zarathustra is my brother's most personal work. It is the history of his most individual experiences, of his friendships, ideals, raptures, bitterest disappointments, and sorrows. Above it all, however, there soars transfiguring it the image of his greatest hopes and remotest aims. My brother had the figure of Zarathustra in his mind from his very earliest youth. He once told me that even as a child he had dreamt of him. At different periods in his life he would call this haunter of his dreams by different names. Quote, but in the end, unquote, he declares in a note on the subject, quote, I had to do a Persian the honor of identifying him with this creature of my fancy. Persians were the first to take a broad and comprehensive view of history. Every series of evolutions, according to them, was presided over by a prophet, and every prophet had his hazar, his dynasty of a thousand years. All Zarathustra's views, as also his personality, were early conceptions of my brother's mind. Whoever reads his posthumously published writings for the years 1869-82 with care will constantly meet with passages suggestive of Zarathustra's thoughts and doctrines. For instance, the ideal of the Superman is put forth quite clearly in all his writings during the years 1873-75, to 75, and in, quote, We Philologists, end quote. The following remarkable observations occur. Quote, how can one praise and glorify a nation as a whole? Even among the Greeks, it was the individuals that counted. The Greeks are interesting and extremely important because they reared such a vast number of great individuals. How is this possible? The question is one which ought to be studied. I am interested only in the relations of a people to the rearing of the individual man, and among the Greeks, the conditions were unusually favorable for the development of the individual, not by any means owing to the goodness of the people, but because of the struggles of their evil instincts. With the help of favorable measures, great individuals might be reared, who would be both different from, and higher than, those who heretofore have owed their existence to mere chance. Here we may still be hopeful." in the rearing of exceptional men. End quote. The notion of rearing the superman is only a new form of an ideal Nietzsche already had in his youth, that, quote, the object of mankind should lie in its highest individuals, end quote. Or as he writes in Schopenhauer as educator, quote, mankind ought constantly to be striving to produce great men, 
This and nothing else is its duty. End quote. But the ideals he most revered in those days are no longer held to be the highest types of men. No. Around this future ideal of a coming humanity, the Superman, the poet spread the veil of becoming. Who can tell to what glorious heights man can still ascend? That is why, after having tested the worth of our noblest ideal, that of the Savior, in the light of the new valuations, the poet cries with passionate emphasis in Zarathustra, quote, Never yet hath there been a Superman. Naked have I seen both of them, the greatest and the smallest man. All too similar are they still to each other. Verily, even the greatest found I all too human. End quote. The phrase, quote, the rearing of the Superman, end quote, has very often been misunderstood. By the word rearing, in this case, is meant the act of modifying by means of new and higher values, values which, as laws and guides of conduct and opinion, are now to rule over mankind. In general, the doctrine of the Superman can only be understood correctly in conjunction with other ideas of the authors, such as the order of rank, the will to power, and the transvaluation of all values. He assumes that Christianity, as a product of the resentment of the botched and the weak, has put in ban all that is beautiful, strong, proud, and powerful. In fact, all the qualities resulting from strength, and that, in consequence, all forces which tend to promote or elevate life have been seriously undermined. Now, however, a new table of valuations must be placed over mankind, namely that of the strong, mighty, and magnificent man, overflowing with life and elevated to his zenith, the superman, who is now put before us with overpowering passion as the aim of our life, hope, and will. And just as the old system of valuing, which only extolled the qualities favorable to the weak, the suffering, and the oppressed, has succeeded in producing a weak, suffering, and modern race, so this new and reversed system of valuing ought to rear a healthy, strong, lively, and courageous type, which would be a glory to life itself. Stated briefly, the leading principle of this new system of valuing would be, quote, All that proceeds from power is good, all that springs from weakness is bad. End quote. This type must not be regarded as a fanciful figure. It is not a nebulous hope which is to be realized at some indefinitely remote period, thousands of years hence, nor is it a new species in the Darwinian sense of which we can know nothing, and which it would therefore be somewhat absurd to strive after. But it is meant to be a possibility which men of the present could realize with all their spiritual and physical energies provided they adopted the new values. The author of Zarathustra never lost sight of that egregious example of a transvaluation of all values through Christianity, whereby the whole of the deified mode of life and thought of the Greeks, as well as strong Romedom, was almost annihilated, or transvalued in a comparatively short time. Could not a rejuvenated Greco-Roman system of valuing 
once it had been refined and made more profound by the schooling which two thousand years of christianity had provided effect another such revolution within a calculable period of time until that glorious type of manhood shall finally appear which is to be our new faith and hope and in the creation of which zarathustra exhorts us to participate in his private notes on the subject the author uses the expression superman always in the singular by the by as signifying quote, the most thoroughly well constituted type as opposed to modern man above all however he designates zarathustra himself as an example of the superman in echo homo he is careful to enlighten us concerning the precursors and prerequisites to the advent of this highest type in referring to a certain passage in the gay science quote, in order to understand this type we must first be quite clear in regard to the leading physiological condition on which it depends this condition is what i call great healthiness i know not how to express my meaning more plainly or more personally than i have done already in one of the last chapters aphorism page three eighty two of the fifth book of the gaia scienza we the new the nameless the hard to understand it says there we firstlings of a yet untried future we require for a new end also a new means namely a new healthiness stronger sharper tougher bolder and merrier than all healthiness hitherto he whose soul longeth to experience the whole range of hitherto recognized values and desirabilities and to circumnavigate all the coasts of this ideal mediterranean sea who from the adventures of his most personal experience wants to know how it feels to be a conqueror a discoverer of the ideal as likewise how it is with the artist the saint the legislator the sage the scholar the devotee the prophet and the godly nonconformist of the old style requires one thing above all for that purpose great healthiness such healthiness as one not only possesses but also constantly acquires and must acquire because one unceasingly sacrifices it again and must sacrifice it and now after having been long on the way in this fashion we argonauts of the ideal more courageous perhaps than prudent and often enough shipwrecked and brought to grief nevertheless dangerously healthy always healthy again it would seem as if in recompense for it all that we have a still undiscovered country before us the boundaries of which no one has yet seen a beyond to all countries and corners of the ideal known hitherto a world so overrich in that beautiful the strange the questionable the frightful and the divine that our curiosity as well as our thirst for possession thereof have got out of hand alas that nothing will now any longer satisfy us how could we still be content with the man of the present day after such outlooks and with such a craving in our conscience and consciousness sad enough 
but it is unavoidable that we should look on the worthiest aims and hopes of the man of the present day with ill-concealed amusement and perhaps should no longer look at them another ideal runs on before us a strange tempting ideal full of danger to which we should not like to persuade anyone because we do not so readily acknowledge anyone's right thereto the ideal of a spirit who plays naively that is to say involuntarily and from overflowing abundance and power with everything that has hitherto been called holy good intangible or divine to whom the loftiest conception which the people have reasonably made their measure of value would already practically imply danger ruin abasement or at least relaxation blindness or temporary self-forgetfulness the ideal of a humanly superhuman welfare and benevolence which will often enough appear inhuman for example when put alongside of all past seriousness on earth and alongside of all past solemnities in bearing word tone look morality and pursuit has their truest involuntary parody and with which nevertheless perhaps the great seriousness only commences when the proper interrogative mark is set up the fate of the soul changes the hour hand moves and tragedy begins End quote. although the figure of zarathustra and a large number of the leading thoughts in this work had appeared much earlier in the dreams and writings of the author thus spake zarathustra did not actually come into being until the month of august eighteen eighty one in silsmaria and it was the idea of the eternal recurrence of all things which finally induced my brother to set forth his new views in poetic language in regard to his first conception of this idea his autobiographical sketch Eke Homo, written in the autumn of eighteen eighty eight contains the following passage quote, the fundamental idea of my work namely the eternal recurrence of all things this highest of all possible formulae of a yea saying philosophy first occurred to me in august eighteen eighty one i made a note of the thought on a sheet of paper with the postscript six thousand feet beyond men and time that day i happened to be wandering through the woods alongside the lake of silva plana and i halted beside a huge pyramidal and towering rock not far from serlier it was then that the thought struck me looking back now i find that exactly two months previous to this inspiration i had had an omen of its coming in the form of a sudden and decisive alteration in my tastes more particularly in music it would even be possible to consider all zarathustra as a musical composition at all events a very necessary condition in its production was the renaissance in myself of the art of hearing in a small mountain resort recaro near vincenza where i spent the spring of eighteen eighty one i and my friend and maestro peter gast also one who had been born again discovered that the phoenix music that hovered over us wore lighter and brighter plumes than it had done theretofore during the month of august eighteen eighty one 
my brother resolved to reveal the teaching of the eternal recurrence, in dithyrambic and psalmodic form, through the mouth of Zarathustra. Among the notes of this period, we found a page on which is written the first definite plan of Thus Spake Zarathustra, quote, Midday and Eternity, Guideposts to a New Way of Living. End quote. Beneath this is written, quote, Zarathustra, born on Lake Ermai, left his home in his thirtieth year, went into the province of Arya, and during ten years of solitude in the mountains, composed the Zend Avesta. The sun of knowledge stands once more at midday, and the serpent of eternity lies coiled in its light. It is your time, ye midday brethren. End quote. In that summer of 1881, my brother, after many years of steadily declining health, began at last to rally, and it is to this first gush of the recovery of his once splendid bodily condition that we owe not only the gay science, which in its mood may be regarded as a prelude to Zarathustra, but also Zarathustra itself. Just as he was beginning to recuperate his health, however, an unkind destiny brought him a number of most painful personal experiences. His friends caused him many disappointments, which were the more bitter to him inasmuch as he regarded friendship as such a sacred institution. And for the first time in his life he realized the whole horror of that loneliness to which, perhaps, all greatness is condemned. But to be forsaken is something very different from deliberately choosing blessed loneliness. How he longed in those days for the ideal friend who would thoroughly understand him, to whom he would be able to say all, and whom he imagined he had found at various periods in his life from his earliest youth onwards. Now, however, that the way he had chosen grew ever more perilous and steep, he found nobody who could follow him. He therefore created a perfect friend for himself, in the ideal form of a majestic philosopher, and made this creation the preacher of his gospel to the world. Whether my brother would ever have written thus spake Zarathustra according to the first plan sketched in summer of 1881, if he had not had the disappointments already referred to, is now an idle question. But perhaps, where Zarathustra is concerned, we may also say with Master Eckhart, quote, the fleetest beast to bear you to perfection is suffering. End quote. My brother writes as follows about the origin of the first part of Zarathustra. Quote, In the winter of 1882-83, I was living on the charming little gulf of Rapolo, not far from Genoa, and between Chiavari and Cape Portofino. My health was not very good. The winter was cold and exceptionally rainy and the small inn in which I lived was so close to the water that at night my sleep would be disturbed if the sea were high. These circumstances were surely the very reverse of favorable, and yet in spite of it all, as if in demonstration of my belief that everything decisive comes to life in spite of every obstacle, it was precisely during this winter, and in the midst of these unfavorable conditions, that my Zarathustra originated. In the morning I used to start out in a southerly direction up the glorious road to Zaukli, 
which rises aloft through a forest of pines and gives one a view far out into the sea. In the afternoon, as often as my health permitted, I walked round the whole bay from Santa Margarita to beyond Portofino. This spot was all the more interesting to me, inasmuch as it was so dearly loved by the Emperor Frederick III. In the autumn of 1886, I chanced to be there again when he was revisiting this small, forgotten world of happiness for the last time. It was on these two roads that all Zarathustra came to me. Above all, Zarathustra himself as a type. I ought rather to say that it was on these walks that these ideas waylaid me. End quote. The first part of Zarathustra was written in about ten days. That is to say, from the beginning to about the middle of February, 1883. Quote, the last lines were written precisely in the hallowed hour when Richard Wagner gave up the ghost in Venice. End quote. With the exception of the ten days occupied in composing the first part of this book, my brother often referred to this winter as the hardest and sickliest he had ever experienced. He did not, however, mean thereby that his former disorders were troubling him, but that he was suffering from a severe attack of influenza, which he had caught in Santa Margarita, and which tormented him for several weeks after his arrival in Genoa. As a matter of fact, however, what he complained of most was his spiritual condition, that indescribable forsakenness, to which he gives such heart-rending expression in Zarathustra. Even the reception which the first part met with at the hands of friends and acquaintances was extremely disheartening, for almost all those to whom he presented copies of the work misunderstood it. Quote, I found no one ripe for many of my thoughts. The case of Zarathustra proves that one can speak with the utmost clearness and yet not be heard by anyone. End quote. My brother was very much discouraged by the feebleness of the response he was given, and as he was striving just then to give up the practice of taking hydrate of chloral, a drug he had begun to take while ill with influenza, the following spring spent in Rome was a somewhat gloomy one for him. He writes about it as follows, quote, I spent a melancholy spring in Rome, where I only just managed to live. And this was no easy matter. This city which is absolutely unsuited to the poet-author of Zarathustra, and for the choice of which I was not responsible, made me inordinately miserable. I tried to leave it. I wanted to go to Aquila, the opposite of Rome in every respect, and actually found it in a spirit of enmity toward that city, just as I also shall found a city some day, as a memento of an atheist and a genuine enemy of the church." a person very closely related to me, the great Hohenstaufen, the Emperor Frederick II. But fate lay behind it all. I had to return again to Rome. In the end I was obliged to be satisfied with the Piazza Barberini, after I had exerted myself in vain to find an anti-Christian quarter. I fear that on one occasion, to avoid bad smells as much as possible, I actually inquired at the Palazzo de Quirinale whether they could not provide a quiet room for a philosopher. In a chamber high above the piazza, just mentioned, from which one obtained a general view of Rome and could hear the fountains splashing far below, the loneliest of all songs was composed. 
the night song. About this time I was obsessed by an unspeakably sad melody, the refrain of which I recognized in the words, Dead through immortality. End quote. We remained somewhat too long in Rome that spring. And what, with the effect of the increasing heat and the discouraging circumstances already described, my brother resolved not to write any more, or, in any case, not to proceed with Zarathustra, although I offered to relieve him of all the trouble in connection with the proofs and the publisher. When, however, he returned to Switzerland towards the end of June, and he found himself once more in the familiar and exhilarating air of the mountains, all his joyous creative powers revived and in a note to me announcing the dispatch of some manuscript, he wrote as follows, quote, I have engaged a place here for three months. Forsooth, I am the greatest fool to allow my courage to be sapped from me by the climate of Italy. Now and again I am troubled by the thought, what next? My future is the darkest thing in the world to me. But as there still remains a great deal for me to do, I suppose I ought rather to think of doing this than of my future, and leave the rest to thee and the gods. End quote. The second part of Zarathustra was written between the 26th of June and the 6th of July. Quote, this summer, finding myself once more in the sacred place where the first thought of Zarathustra flashed across my mind, I conceived the second part. Ten days sufficed, neither for the second, the first, nor the third part, have I required a day longer? End quote. He often used to speak of the ecstatic mood in which he wrote Zarathustra, how in his walks over hill and dale the ideas would crowd into his mind, and how he would note them down hastily in a notebook, from which he would transcribe them on his return, sometimes working till midnight. He says in a letter to me, quote, You can have no idea of the vehemence of such composition. End quote. And in Ecce Homo, autumn eighteen eighty eight, he describes as follows with passionate enthusiasm the incomparable mood in which he created Zarathustra. Quote, Has anyone at the end of the nineteenth century any distinct notion of what poets of a stronger age understood by the word inspiration? If not, I will describe it. If one had the smallest vestige of superstition in one, it would hardly be possible to set aside completely the idea that one is the mere incarnation, mouthpiece or medium, of an almighty power. The idea of revelation in the sense that something becomes suddenly visible and audible, with indescribable certainty and accuracy, which profoundly convulses and upsets one, describes simply the matter of fact one hears one does not seek one takes one does not ask who gives a thought suddenly flashes up like lightning it comes with necessity unhesitatingly i have never had any choice in the matter there is an ecstasy such that the immense strain of it is sometimes relaxed by a flood of tears along with which one's steps either rush or involuntarily lag alternately there is the feeling that one is completely out of hand, with a very distinct consciousness of an endless number of fine thrills and quiverings to the very toes. There is a depth of happiness in which the painfulest and gloomiest do not operate as antitheses. 
but as conditioned, as demanded in the sense of necessary shades of color and such an overflow of light. There is an instinct for rhythmic relations, which embraces wide areas of forms. Length, the need of a wide embracing rhythm, is almost the measure of the force of an inspiration, a sort of counterpart to its pressure and tension. Everything happens quite involuntarily, as if in a tempestuous outburst of freedom, of absoluteness, of power and divinity. The involuntariness of the figures and similes is the most remarkable thing. One loses all perception of what constitutes the figure and what constitutes the simile. Everything seems to present itself as the readiest, the correctest, and the simplest means of expression. It actually seems to use one of Zarathustra's own phrases, as if all things came unto one, and would fain be similes. Here do all things come caressingly to thy talk and flatter thee, for they want to ride upon thy back. On every simile dost thou here ride to every truth. Here fly open unto thee all beings, words, and word cabinets. Here all being wanteth to become words, here all becoming wanteth to learn of thee how to talk. This is my experience of inspiration. I do not doubt but that one would have to go back thousands of years in order to find someone who could say to me, It is mine also. End quote. In the autumn of 1883, my brother left the Engadine for Germany and stayed there a few weeks. In the following winter, after wandering somewhat erratically through Stresa, Genoa, and Spezia, he landed in Nice, where the climate so happily promoted his creative powers that he wrote the third part of Zarathustra. Quote, in the winter, beneath the halcyon sky of Nice, which then looked down upon me for the first time in my life, I found the third Zarathustra, and came to the end of my task, the whole having occupied me scarcely a year. Many hidden corners and heights in the landscapes round about Nice are hallowed to me by unforgettable moments. That decisive chapter, entitled Old and New Tables, was composed in the very difficult ascent from the station to Aza, that wonderful Moorish village in the rocks. My most creative moments were always accompanied by unusual muscular activity. The body is inspired. Let us waive the question of the soul. I might often have been seen dancing in those days. Without a suggestion of fatigue, I could then walk for seven or eight hours on end among the hills. I slept well and laughed well. I was perfectly robust and patient. End quote. As we have seen, each of the three parts of Zarathustra was written, after a more or less short period of preparation, in about ten days. The composition of the fourth part alone was broken by occasional interruptions. The first notes relating to this part were written while he and I were staying together in Zurich in September 1884. In the following November, while staying at Meton, he began to elaborate these notes and, after a long pause, finished the manuscript at Nice between the end of January and the middle of February 1885. My brother then called this part the fourth and last. But even before and shortly after, it had been privately printed, 
he wrote to me saying that he still intended writing a fifth and sixth part and notes relating to these parts are now in my possession this fourth part the original manuscript of which contains this note quote, only for my friends not for the public end quote, is written in a particularly personal spirit and those few to whom he presented a copy of it he pledged to the strictest secrecy concerning its contents he often thought of making this fourth part public also but doubted whether he would ever be able to do so without considerably altering certain portions of it at all events he resolved to distribute this manuscript production of which only forty copies were printed only among those who had proved themselves worthy of it and it speaks eloquently of his utter loneliness and need of sympathy in those days that he had occasion to present only seven copies of his book according to this resolution already at the beginning of this history i hinted at the reasons which led my brother to select a persian as the incarnation of his ideal of the majestic philosopher his reasons however for choosing zarathustra of all others to be his mouthpiece he gives us in the following words quote, people have never asked me as they should have done what the name zarathustra precisely means in my mouth in the mouth of the first immoralist for what distinguishes that philosopher from all others in the past is the very fact that he was exactly the reverse of an immoralist zarathustra was the first to see in the struggle between good and evil the essential wheel in the working of things the translation of morality into the metaphysical as force cause and in itself was his work but the very question suggests its own answer zarathustra created the most portentous error morality consequently he should also be the first to perceive that error not only because he has had longer and greater experience of the subject than any other thinker all history is the experimental refutation of the theory of the so-called moral order of things the more important point is that zarathustra was more truthful than any other thinker in his teaching alone do we meet with truthfulness upheld as the highest virtue i e the reverse of the cowardice of the idealist who flees from reality zarathustra had more courage in his body than any other thinker before or after him to tell the truth and to aim straight that is the first persian virtue am i understood the overcoming of morality through itself through truthfulness the overcoming of the moralist through his opposite through me that is what the name zarathustra means in my mouth End quote. elizabeth forster nietzsche nietzsche archives weimar december 1905 notes on thus spake zarathustra by anthony m ludovici i have had some opportunities of studying the conditions under which nietzsche is read in germany france and england and i have found that in each of these countries students of his philosophy as if actuated by precisely similar motives and desires and misled by the same mistaken tactics on the part of most publishers all proceed in the same happy-go-lucky style when taking him up 
They have had it said to them that he wrote without any system, and they very naturally conclude that it does not matter in the least whether they begin with his first, third, or last book, provided they can obtain a few vague ideas as to what his leading and most sensational principles were. Now, it is clear that the book with the most mysterious, startling, or suggestive title will always stand the best chance of being purchased by those who have no other criteria to guide them in their choice than the aspect of a title-page. And this explains why Thus Spake Zarathustra is almost always the first and often the only one of Nietzsche's books that falls into the hands of the uninitiated. The title suggests all kinds of mysteries. A glance at the chapter headings quickly confirms the suspicions already aroused, and the subtitle, A Book for All and None, generally succeeds in dissipating the last doubts the prospective purchaser may entertain concerning his fitness for the book, or its fitness for him. And what happens? Thus spake Zarathustra is taken home. The reader, who perchance may know no more concerning Nietzsche than a magazine article has told him, tries to read it, and understanding less than half he reads probably never gets further than the second or third part, and then only to feel convinced that Nietzsche himself was, quote, rather hazy, unquote, as to what he was talking about. Such chapters as The Child with the Mirror, In the Happy Isles, The Grave Song, Immaculate Perception, The Stillest Hour, The Seven Seals, and many others, are almost utterly devoid of meaning to all those who do not know something of Nietzsche's life, his aims, and his friendships. As a matter of fact, thus spake Zarathustra, though it is unquestionably Nietzsche's opus magnum, is by no means the first of Nietzsche's work that the beginner ought to undertake to read. The author himself refers to it as the deepest work ever offered to the German public, and elsewhere speaks of his other writings as being necessary for the understanding of it. But when it is remembered that in Zarathustra we not only have the history of his most intimate experiences, friendships, feuds, disappointments, triumphs, and the like, but that the very form in which they are narrated is one which tends rather to obscure than to throw light upon them. The difficulties which meet the reader who starts quite unprepared will be seen to be really formidable. Zarathustra, then, this shadowy allegorical personality, speaking in allegories and parables and at times not even refraining from relating his own dreams, is a figure we can understand but very imperfectly if we have no knowledge of his creator and counterpart, Friedrich Nietzsche. And it were therefore well, previous to our study of the more obtruse parts of this book, if we were to turn to some authoritative book on Nietzsche's life and works, and to read all that there is said on the subject. Those who can read German will find an excellent guide in this respect in Frau Förster Nietzsche's exhaustive and highly interesting biography of her brother, Das Leben Friedrich Nietzsches, published by Naumann, while the works of Dussain, Raoul Richter, and Baroness Isabella von Unger-Sternberg will be found to throw useful and necessary light upon many questions which it would be difficult for a sister to touch upon. In regard to the actual philosophical views expounded in this work, there is an excellent way of clearing up any difficulties they may present, 
and that is by an appeal to Nietzsche's other works. Again and again, of course. He will be found to express himself so clearly that all reference to his other writings may be dispensed with. But where this is not the case, the advice he himself gives is, after all, the best to be followed here, vis-a-vis -vis to regard such works as joyful science, beyond good and evil, the genealogy of morals, the twilight of the idols, the antichrist, the will to power, etc., etc., as the necessary preparation for thus spake Zarathustra. These directions, though they are by no means simple to carry out, seem at least to possess the quality of definiteness and straightforwardness. Quote, follow them and all will be clear, unquote, I seem to imply. But I regret to say that this is not really the case. For my experience tells me that even after the above directions have been followed with the greatest possible zeal, the student will still halt in perplexity before certain passages in the book before us, and wonder what they mean. Now, it is with the view of giving a little additional help to all those who find themselves in this position that I proceed to put forth my own personal interpretation of the more abstruse passages in this work. In offering this little commentary to the Nietzsche student, I should like it to be understood that I make no claim as to its infallibility or indispensability. It represents but an attempt on my part, a very feeble one, perhaps, to give the reader what little help I can in surmounting difficulties which a long study of Nietzsche's life and works has enabled me, partially, I hope, to overcome. Perhaps it would be as well to start out with a broad and rapid sketch of Nietzsche as a writer on morals, evolution, and sociology so that the reader may be prepared to pick out for himself, so to speak, all passages in this work bearing in any way upon Nietzsche's views in those three important branches of knowledge. A. Nietzsche and Morality In morality, Nietzsche starts out by adopting the position of the relativist. He says there are no absolute values good and evil, these are mere means adopted by all in order to acquire power, to maintain their place in the world, or to become supreme. It is the lion's good to devour an antelope. It is the dead-leaf butterfly's good to tell a foe a falsehood. For when the dead-leaf butterfly is in danger, it clings to the side of a twig, and what it says to its foe is practically this. I am not a butterfly. I am a dead-leaf and can be of no use to thee. This is a lie which is good to the butterfly, for it preserves it. In nature every species of organic being instinctively adopts and practices those acts which most conduce to the prevalency or supremacy of its kind. Once the most favorable order of conduct is found, proved efficient and established, it becomes the ruling morality of the species that adopts it and bears them along to victory. All species must not and cannot value alike, for what is the lion's good is the antelope's evil and vice versa. Concepts of good and evil are therefore in their origin merely a means to an end. They are expedients for acquiring power. Applying this principle to mankind, Nietzsche attacked Christian moral values, he declared them to be, like all other morals, 
merely an expedient for protecting a certain type of man. In the case of Christianity, this type was, according to Nietzsche, a low one. Conflicting moral codes have been no more than the conflicting weapons of different classes of men. For in mankind there is a continual war between the powerful, the noble, the strong, and the well-constituted on the one side, and the impotent, the mean, the weak, and the ill-constituted on the other. The war is a war of moral principles. The morality of the powerful class Nietzsche calls noble, or master morality. That of the weak and subordinate class he calls slave morality. In the first morality, it is the eagle which, looking down upon a browsing limb, contends that eating lamb is good. In the second, the slave morality, it is the lamb which, looking up from the sward, bleats dissentingly, eating lamb is evil. B. The master and slave morality compared. The first morality is active, creative, Dionysian. The second is passive, defensive. To it belongs the struggle for existence. Where attempts have not been made to reconcile the two moralities, they may be described as follows. All is good in the noble morality which proceeds from strength, power, health, well-constitutedness, happiness, and awfulness. For the motive force behind the people practicing it is the struggle for power. The antithesis, good and bad, to this first class means the same as noble and despicable. Bad in the master morality must be applied to the coward, to all acts that spring from weakness, to the man with an eye to the main chance, who would forsake everything in order to live. With the second, the slave morality, the case is different. There, inasmuch as the community is an oppressed, suffering, unemancipated, and weary one, all that will be held to be good which alleviates the state of suffering. Pity, the obliging hand, the warm heart, patience, industry, and humility, these are unquestionably the qualities we shall here find, flooded with the light of approval and admiration, because they are the most useful qualities. They make life endurable, they are of assistance in the struggle for existence, which is the motive force behind the people practicing this morality. To this class, all that is awful is bad. In fact, it is the evil par excellence. Strength, health, superabundance of animal spirits and power are regarded with hate, suspicion, and fear by the subordinate class. Now, Nietzsche believed that the first or the noble morality conduced to an ascent in the line of life, because it was creative and active. On the other hand, he believed that the second or slave morality, where it became paramount, led to degeneration, because it was passive and defensive, wanting merely to keep those who practiced it alive. Hence, his earnest advocacy of noble morality c nietzsche and evolution nietzsche as an evolutionist i shall have occasion to define and discuss in the course of these notes see notes on chapter fifty six paragraph ten 
and on chapter 57. For the present, let it suffice for us to know that he accepted the development hypothesis as an explanation of the origin of species. But he did not halt where most naturalists have halted. He by no means regarded man as the highest possible being which evolution could arrive at. For though his physical development may have reached its limit, this is not the case with his mental or spiritual attributes. If the process be a fact, if things have become what they are, then he contends we may describe no limit to man's aspirations. If he struggled up from barbarism, and still more remotely from the lower primates, his ideal should be to surpass man himself and reach superman. See especially the prologue. D. Nietzsche in Sociology Nietzsche as a sociologist aims at an aristocratic arrangement of society. He would have us rear an ideal race. Honest and truthful in intellectual matters, he could not even think that men are equal. Quote, With these preachers of equality will I not be mixed up and confounded. For thus speaketh justice unto me, men are not equal. End quote. He sees precisely in this inequality a purpose to be served, a condition to be exploited. Quote, Every elevation of the type man, he writes in Beyond Good and Evil, has hitherto been the work of an aristocratic society, and so will it always be, a society believing in a long scale of gradations of rank and differences of worth among human beings. End quote. Those who are sufficiently interested to desire to read his own detailed account of the society he would fain establish will find an excellent passage in Aphorism 57 of the Antichrist. End of Notes on Thus Fake Zarathustra by Anthony M. Ludovici End of the Introduction Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia First Part Zarathustra's Discourses of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Zarathustra's Prologue When Zarathustra was thirty years old, he left his home and the lake of his home, and went into the mountains. There he enjoyed his spirit in solitude, and for ten years did not weary of it. But at last his heart changed and rising one morning with the rosy dawn, he went before the sun and spake thus unto it. Thou great star, what would be thy happiness if thou hast not those for whom thou shinest? For ten years hast thou climbed hither unto my cave. Thou wouldst have wearied of thy light and of thy journey, had it not been for me, mine eagle, and mine servant. But we awaited thee every morning, took from thee thine overflow, and blessed thee for it. Lo, I am weary of my wisdom. Like the bee that hath gathered too much honey, I need hands outstretched to take it. I would fain bestow and distribute, until the wise have once more become joyous in their folly, and the poor happy in their riches. Therefore must I descend into the deep, as thou doest in the evening." When thou goest behind the sea, and givest light also to the nether world, thou exuberant star. Like thee, 
must I go down, as men say, to whom I shall descend. Bless me, then, thou tranquil eye, that canst behold even the greatest happiness without envy. Bless the cup that is about to overflow, that the water may flow golden out of it, and carry everywhere the reflection of thy bliss. Lo, this cup is again going to empty itself, and Zarathustra is again going to be a man. Thus began Zarathustra's downgoing. Zarathustra went down the mountain alone, no one meeting him. When he entered the forest, however, there suddenly stood before him an old man, who had left his holy cot to seek roots, and thus spake the old man to Zarathustra. No stranger to me is this wanderer. Many years ago passed he by. Zarathustra he was called, but he hath altered. Then thou carriest thine ashes into the mountains. Wilt thou now carry thy fire into the valleys? Fearest thou not the incendiary's doom? Yea, I recognize Zarathustra. Pure is his eye, and no loathing lurketh about his mouth. Goeth he not along like a dancer? Altered is Zarathustra. A child hath Zarathustra become. An awakened one is Zarathustra. What wilt thou do in the land of the sleepers? As in the sea hast thou lived in solitude, and it hath borne thee up. Alas! Wilt thou now go ashore? Alas! Wilt thou again drag thy body thyself? Zarathustra answered, I love mankind. Why, said the saint, did I go into the forest and the desert? Was it not because I loved men far too well? Now I love God. Men I do not love. Man is a thing too imperfect for me. Love to man would be fatal to me. Zarathustra answered, What spake I of love? I am bringing gifts unto men. Give them nothing, said the saint. Take rather part of their load, and carry it along with them. That will be most agreeable unto them, if only it be agreeable unto thee. If, however, thou wilt give unto them, give them no more than an alms, and let them also beg for it. No, replied Zarathustra. I give no alms. I am not poor enough for that. The saint laughed at Zarathustra and spake thus. Then see to it that they accept thy treasures. They are distrustful of anchorites, and do not believe that we come with gifts. The fall of our footsteps ringeth too hollow through their streets, and just as at night, when they are in bed, and hear a man abroad long before sunrise, so they ask themselves concerning us, Where goeth the thief? Go not to men, but stay in the forest. Go rather to the animals, 
why not be like me a bear amongst bears a bird amongst birds and what doeth the saint in the forest asked zarathustra the saint answered i make hymns and sing them and in making hymns i laugh and weep and mumble thus do i praise god with singing weeping laughing and mumbling do i praise the god who is my god but what dost thou bring us as a gift when zarathustra had heard these words he bowed to the saint and said what should i have to give thee let me rather hurry hence lest i take aught away from thee and thus they parted from one another the old man and zarathustra laughing like schoolboys when zarathustra was alone however he said to his heart could it be possible this old saint in the forest hath not yet heard of it that god is dead when zarathustra arrived at the nearest town which adjoineth the forest he found many people assembled in the market-place for it had been announced that a rope-dancer would give a performance and zarathustra spake thus unto the people i teach you the superman man is something that is to be surpassed what have ye done to surpass man all beings hitherto have created something beyond themselves and ye want to be the ebb of that great tide and would rather go back to the beast than surpass man what is the ape to man a laughing-stock a thing of shame and just the same shall man be to the superman a laughing-stock a thing of shame ye have made your way from the worm to man and much within you is still worm once were ye apes and even yet man is more of an ape than any of the apes even the wisest among you is only a disharmony and a hybrid of plant and phantom but do i bid you become phantoms or plants lo i teach you the superman the superman is the meaning of the earth let your will say the superman shall be the meaning of the earth i conjure you my brethren remain true to the earth and believe not those who speak unto you of super earthly hopes poisoners are they whether they know it or not despisers of life are they decaying ones and poisoned ones themselves of whom the earth is weary so away with them once blasphemy against god was the greatest blasphemy but god died and therewith also those blasphemers to blaspheme the earth is now the dreadfulest sin and to rate the heart of the unknowable higher than the meaning of the earth once the soul looked contemptuously on the body and then that contempt was the supreme thing the soul wished the body meagre ghastly and famished thus it thought to escape from the body and the earth oh that soul was itself meagre ghastly and famished and cruelty was the delight of that soul but ye also my brethren tell me what doth your body say about your soul is your soul not poverty 
and pollution and wretched self-complacency. Verily, a polluted stream is man. One must be a sea to receive a polluted stream without becoming impure. Lo, I teach you the superman. He is that sea. In him can your great contempt be submerged. What is the greatest thing ye can experience? It is the hour of great contempt, the hour in which even your happiness becometh loathsome unto you, and so also your reason and virtue, the hour when ye say, What good is my happiness? It is poverty and pollution and wretched self-complacency. But my happiness should justify existence itself, the hour when ye say, what good is my reason? Doth it long for knowledge as the lion for his food? It is poverty and pollution and wretched self-complacency. The hour when ye say, What good is my virtue? As yet it hath not made me passionate. How weary I am of my good and my bad. It is all poverty and pollution and wretched self-complacency. The hour when ye say, what good is my justice? I do not see that I am fervor and fuel. The just, however, are fervor and fuel. The hour when ye say, What good is my pity? Is not pity the cross on which he is nailed who loveth man? But my pity is not a crucifixion. Have ye ever spoken thus? Have ye ever cried thus? Ah! Would that I had heard you crying thus. It is not your sin. It is your self-satisfaction that crieth unto heaven. Your very sparingness in sin crieth unto heaven. Where is the lightning to lick you with its tongue? Where is the frenzy with which ye should be inoculated? Lo, I teach you the superman. He is that lightning. He is that frenzy. When Zarathustra had thus spoken, one of the people called out, "'We have now heard enough of the rope-dancer. It is time now for us to see him.' And all the people laughed at Zarathustra, but the rope-dancer, who thought the words applied to him, began his performance. Zarathustra, however, looked at the people and wondered. Then he spake thus, "'Man!' is a rope stretched between the animal and the superman. A rope over an abyss. A dangerous crossing. A dangerous wayfaring. A dangerous looking back. A dangerous trembling and halting. What is great in man is that he is a bridge and not a goal. What is lovable in man is that he is an overgoing and a downgoing. I love those that know not how to live except as downgoers, for they are the overgoers. I love the great despisers, because they are the great adorers and arrows of longing for the other shore. I love those who do not first seek a reason beyond the stars for going down and being sacrifices, but sacrifice themselves to the earth, that the earth of the superman may hereafter arrive. I love him who liveth in order to know, 
and seeketh to know in order that the superman may hereafter live. Thus seeketh he his own downgoing. I love him who laboreth and inventeth, that he may build the house for the superman, and prepare for him earth, animal, and plant. For thus seeketh he his own downgoing. I love him who loveth his virtue, for virtue is the will to downgoing, and an arrow of longing. I love him who reserveth no share of spirit for himself, but wanteth to be wholly the spirit of his virtue. Thus walketh he as spirit over the bridge. I love him who maketh his virtue his inclination and destiny. Thus, for the sake of his virtue, he is willing to live on or live no more. I love him who desireth not too many virtues. One virtue is more of a virtue than two, because it is more of a knot for one's destiny to cling to. I love him whose soul is lavish, who wanteth no thanks and doth not give back, for he always bestoweth and desireth not to keep for himself. I love him who is ashamed when the dice fall in his favor, and who then asketh, Am I a dishonest player? For he is willing to succumb. I love him who scattereth golden words in advance of his deeds, and always doeth more than he promiseth, for he seeketh his own downgoing. I love him who justifieth the future ones, and redeemeth the past ones, for he is willing to succumb through the present ones. I love him who chasteneth his God, because he loveth his God, for he must succumb through the wrath of his God. I love him whose soul is deep even in the wounding, and may succumb through a small matter, thus goeth he willingly over the bridge. I love him whose soul is so overfull that he forgetteth himself, and all things are in him, thus all things become his downgoing. I love him who is of a free spirit and a free heart, thus is his head only the bowels of his heart. His heart, however, causeth his downgoing. I love all who are like heavy drops, falling one by one out of the dark cloud that lowereth over man. They herald the coming of the lightning, and succumb as heralds. Lo, I am a herald of the lightning, and a heavy drop out of the cloud. The lightning, however, is the superman. When Zarathustra had spoken these words, he again looked at the people and was silent. There they stand, said he to his heart. There they laugh. They understand me not. I am not the mouth for these ears. Must one first batter their ears that they may learn to hear with their eyes? Must one clatter like kettle-drums and penitential preachers? Or do they only believe the stammerer? They have something whereof they are proud. What do they call it? That which maketh them proud? A culture, they call it. It distinguisheth them from the goat-herds. They dislike, therefore, to hear of contempt of themselves. 
So I will appeal to their pride. I will speak unto them of the most contemptible thing. That, however, is the last man. And thus spake Zarathustra unto the people. It is time for a man to fix his goal. It is time for a man to plant the germ of his highest hope. Still is his soil rich enough for it, but that soil will one day be poor and exhausted, and no lofty tree will any longer be able to grow thereon. Alas, there cometh the time when man will no longer launch the arrow of his longing beyond man, and the string of his bow will have unlearned to whiz. I tell you, one must still have chaos in one to give birth to a dancing star. I tell you, ye have still chaos in you. Alas, there cometh the time when man will no longer give birth to any star. Alas, there cometh the time of the most despicable man who can no longer despise himself. Lo, I show you the last man. What is love? What is creation? What is longing? What is a star? So asketh the last man, and blinketh. The earth hath then become small, and on it there hoppeth the last man, who maketh everything small. His species is ineradicable, like that of the ground flea. The last man liveth longest. We have discovered happiness, say the last men, and blink thereby. They have left the regions where it is hard to live, for they need warmth. One still loveth one's neighbor, and rubbeth against him, for one needeth warmth. Turning ill, and being distrustful, they consider sinful. They walk warily. He is a fool who will stumbleth over stones or men. A little poison now and then, that maketh pleasant dreams. And much poison at last for a pleasant death. One still worketh, for work is a pastime. But one is careful lest the pastime should hurt one. One no longer becometh poor or rich. Both are too burdensome. Who still wanteth to rule? Who still wanteth to obey? Both are too burdensome. No shepherd, and one herd. Everyone wanteth the same. Everyone is equal. He who hath other sentiments goeth voluntarily into the madhouse. Formerly all the world was insane, say the subtlest of them, and blink thereby. They are clever and know all that hath happened, so there is no end to their raillery. People still fall out, but are soon reconciled, otherwise it spoileth their stomachs. They have their little pleasures for the day, and their little pleasures for the night, but they have a regard for health. We have discovered happiness, say the last men, and blink thereby. And here ended the first discourse of Zarathustra, which is also called the Prologue, for at this point the shouting and mirth of the multitude interrupted him. "'Give us this last man, O Zarathustra!' 
they called out. Make us into these last men. Then we will make thee a present of the superman. And all the people exulted and smacked their lips. Zarathustra, however, turned sad and said to his heart, They understand me not. I am not the mouth for these ears. Too long, perhaps, have I lived in the mountains. Too much have I hearkened unto the brooks and trees. Now do I speak unto them as unto the goat herds. Calm is my soul and clear, like the mountains in the morning. But they think me cold and a mocker with terrible jests. And now do they look at me and laugh, and while they laugh they hate me too. There is ice in their laughter. Then, however, something happened which made every mouth mute and every eye fixed. In the meantime, of course, the rope-dancer had commenced his performance. He had come out at a little door and was going along the rope which was stretched between two towers, so that it hung above the marketplace and the people. When he was just midway across, the little door opened once more, and a gaudily-dressed fellow, like a buffoon, sprang out, and went rapidly after the first one. "'Go on, Haltfoot!' cried his frightful voice. "'Go on, lazybones! Interloper! Sallow-faced! Lest I tickle thee with my heel! What dost thou hear between the towers? In the tower is the place for thee. Thou shouldst be locked up. To one better than thyself thou blockest away!' and with every word he came nearer and nearer the first one. When, however, he was but a step behind, there happened the frightful thing which made every mouth mute and every eye fixed. He uttered a yell like a devil, and jumped over the other who was in his way. The latter, however, when he thus saw his rival triumph, lost at the same time his head and his footing on the rope. He threw his pole away and shot downwards faster than it, like an eddy of arms and legs, into the depth. The marketplace and the people were like the sea when the storm cometh on. They all flew apart and in disorder, especially where the body was about to fall. Zarathustra, however, remained standing, and just beside him fell the body, badly injured and disfigured, but not yet dead. After a while consciousness returned to the shattered man, and he saw Zarathustra, kneeling beside him. "'What art thou doing here?' said he at last. "'I knew long ago that the devil would trip me up. Now he draggeth me to hell. Wilt thou prevent him?' "'On mine honour, my friend,' answered Zarathustra, "'there is nothing of all that whereof thou speakest. There is no devil, and no hell.' Thy soul will be dead even sooner than thy body. Fear, therefore, nothing any more. The man looked up distrustfully. If thou speakest the truth, said he, I lose nothing when I lose my life. I am not much more than an animal, which hath been taught to dance by blows and scanty fare. Not at all said Zarathustra. Thou hast made danger thy calling. Therein there is nothing contemptible. Now thou perishest by thy calling. 
therefore will I bury thee with mine own hands. When Zarathustra had said this, the dying one did not reply further, but he moved his hand as if he sought the hand of Zarathustra in gratitude. Meanwhile, the evening came on, and the marketplace veiled itself in gloom. Then the people dispersed, for even curiosity and terror became fatigued. Zarathustra, however, still sat beside the dead man on the ground, absorbed in thought. So he forgot the time. But at last it became night, and a cold wind blew upon the lonely one. Then arose Zarathustra and said to his heart, Verily, a fine catch of fish hath Zarathustra made today. It is not a man he hath caught, but a corpse. Somber is human life, and as yet without meaning a buffoon may be faithful to it. I want to teach men the sense of their existence, which is the superman, the lightning out of the dark cloud, man. But still am I far from them, and my sense speaketh not unto their sense. To men I am still something between a fool and a corpse. Gloomy is the night. Gloomy are the ways of Zarathustra. Come, thou cold and stiff companion, I carry thee to the place where I shall bury thee with mine own hands. When Zarathustra had said this to his heart, he put the corpse upon his shoulders and set out on his way. Yet he had not gone a hundred steps when there stole a man up to him and whispered in his ear, and lo, he that spake was the buffoon from the tower. Leave this town, O Zarathustra, said he. There are too many here who hate thee. The good and just hate thee, and call thee their enemy and despiser. The believers in the orthodox belief hate thee, and call thee a danger to the multitude. It was thy good fortune to be laughed at, and verily thou spakest like a buffoon. It was thy good fortune to associate with the dead dog. By so humiliating thyself, thou hast saved thy life to-day. Depart, however, from this town, or to-morrow I shall jump over thee, a living man, over a dead one. And when he had said this, the buffoon vanished. Zarathustra, however, went on through the dark streets. At the gate of the town the grave-diggers met him. They shone their torch on his face, and, recognizing Zarathustra, they sorely derided him. Zarathustra is carrying away the dead dog. A fine thing that Zarathustra hath turned a grave-digger, for our hands are too cleanly for that roast. Will Zarathustra steal the bite from the devil? Well, then, good luck to the repast. If only the devil is not a better thief than Zarathustra. He will steal them both. He will eat them both. And they laughed among themselves and put their heads together. Zarathustra made no answer thereto, but went on his way. When he had gone on for two hours past forests and swamps, he had heard too much of the hungry howling of the wolves, and he himself became a hungry. So he halted at a lonely house in which a light was burning. Hunger attacketh me said Zarathustra. Like a robber, 
among forests and swamps my hunger attacketh me, and late in the night. Strange humours hath my hunger. Often it cometh to me only after a repast, and all day it hath failed to come. Where hath it been? And thereupon Zarathustra knocked at the door of the house. An old man appeared, who carried a light, and asked, who cometh unto me and my bad sleep a living man and a dead one said zarathustra give me something to eat and drink i forgot it during the day he that feedeth the hungry refresheth his own soul saith wisdom the old man withdrew but came back immediately and offered zarathustra bread and wine a bad country for the hungry said he that is why i live here animal and man come unto me the anchorite but bid thy companion eat and drink also he is wearier than thou zarathustra answered my companion is dead i shall hardly be able to persuade him to eat that doth not concern me said the old man sullenly he that knocketh at my door must take what i offer him eat and fare ye well thereafter zarathustra again went on for two hours trusting to the path and the light of the stars for he was an experienced night-walker and liked to look into the face of all that slept when the morning dawned however Zarathustra found himself in a thick forest, and no path was any longer visible. He then put the dead man in a hollow tree at his head, for he wanted to protect him from the wolves, and laid himself down on the ground and moss, and immediately he fell asleep, tired in body but with a tranquil soul. Long slept Zarathustra, and not only the rosy dawn passed over his head, but also the morning. At last, however, his eyes opened, and amazedly he gazed into the forest and the stillness. Amazedly he gazed into himself. Then he arose quickly, like a seafarer who all at once seeth the land, and he shouted for joy, for he saw a new truth. And he spake thus to his heart, A light hath dawned upon me. I need companions living ones not dead companions and corpses which i carry with me where i will but i need living companions who will follow me because they want to follow themselves and to the place where i will a light hath dawned upon me not to the people of zarathustra to speak but to companions zarathustra shall not be the herds herdsman and hound to allure many from the herd for that purpose have I come. The people and the herd must be angry with me. A robber shall Zarathustra be called by the herdsmen. Herdsmen, I say, but they call themselves the good and just. Herdsmen, I say, but they call themselves the believers in the orthodox belief. Behold the good and just. Whom do they hate most? Him who breaketh up their tables of values the breaker the law-breaker he however is the creator behold the believers of all beliefs whom do they hate most 
him who breaketh up their tables of values the breaker the law-breaker he however is the creator companions the creator seeketh not corpses and not herds or believers either fellow creators the creator seeketh those who grave new values on new tables companions the creator seeketh and fellow reapers for everything is ripe for the harvest with him but he lacketh the hundred sickles so he plucketh the ears of corn and is vexed companions the creator seeketh and such as know how to wet their sickles destroyers will they be called and despisers of good and evil but they are the reapers and rejoicers fellow creators zarathustra seeketh fellow reapers and fellow rejoicers zarathustra seeketh what hath he to do with herds and herdsmen and corpses and thou my first companion rest in peace well have i buried thee in thy hollow tree well have i hid thee from the wolves but i part from thee the time hath arrived twixt rosy dawn and rosy dawn there came unto me a new truth i am not to be a herdsman i am not to be a grave-digger not any more will i discourse unto the people for the last time i have spoken unto the dead with the creators the reapers and the rejoicers will i associate the rainbow will i show them and all the stairs to the superman to the lone dwellers will I sing my song, and to the twain dwellers, and unto him who hath still ears for the unheard, will I make the heart heavy with my happiness, I make for my goal. I follow my course, over the loitering and tardy will I leap. Thus let my ongoing be their downgoing. This had Zarathustra said to his heart, when the sun stood at noontide. Then he looked inquiringly aloft, for he heard above him the sharp call of a bird. And behold, an eagle swept through the air in wide circles, and on it hung a serpent, not like a prey, but like a friend, for it kept itself coiled round the eagle's neck. "'They are mine animals,' said Zarathustra, and rejoiced in his heart." the proudest animal under the sun and the wisest animal under the sun they have come out to reconnoitre they want to know whether zarathustra still liveth verily do i still live more dangerous have i found it among men than among animals in dangerous paths goeth zarathustra let mine animals lead me when zarathustra had said this he remembered the words of the saint in the forest. Then he sighed and spake thus to his heart. Would that I were wiser. Would that I were wise from the very heart like my serpent. But I am asking the impossible. Therefore, do I ask my pride to go always with my wisdom? And if my wisdom should some day forsake me, alas, it loveth to fly away. May my pride then fly with my folly. Thus began Zarathustra's downgoing. Annotations by Anthony M. Ludovici. In part one, including the prologue, 
no very great difficulties will appear. Zarathustra's habit of designating a whole class of men or a whole school of thought by a single fitting nickname may perhaps lead to a little confusion at first. But, as a rule, when the general drift of his arguments is grasped, it requires but a slight effort of the imagination to discover whom he is referring to. In the ninth paragraph of the prologue, for instance, it is quite obvious that herdsmen, in the verse, herdsmen, I say, etc., etc., stands for all those today who are the advocates of gregariousness, of the anthill. And when our author says, quote, a robber shall Zarathustra be called by the herdsmen, end quote, it is clear that these words may be taken almost literally from one whose ideal was the rearing of a higher aristocracy. Again, quote, the good and just, unquote, throughout the book, is the expression used in referring to the self-righteous of modern times, those who are quite sure that they know all that is to be known concerning good and evil, and are satisfied that the values their little world of tradition has handed down to them, are destined to rule mankind as long as it lasts. In the last paragraph of the prologue, verse 7, Zarathustra gives us a foretaste of his teaching concerning the big and the little sagacities, expounded subsequently. He says he would he were as wise as his serpent. This desire will be found explained in the discourse entitled, quote, The Despisers of the Body, unquote, which I shall have occasion to refer to later. End of the prologue. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part 1, Chapter 1 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Three Metamorphoses Three metamorphoses of the spirit do I designate to you. How the spirit becometh a camel, the camel a lion, and the lion at last a child. Many heavy things are there for the spirit, the strong load-bearing spirit in which reverence dwelleth, for the heavy and the heaviest longeth its strength. What is heavy? So asketh the load-bearing spirit, then kneeleth it down like the camel, and wanteth to be well laden. What is the heaviest thing, ye heroes? Asketh the load-bearing spirit, that I may take it upon me and rejoice in my strength. Is it not this? To humiliate oneself in order to mortify one's pride? To exhibit one's folly in order to mock at one's wisdom? Or is it this? To desert our cause when it celebrateth its triumph? To ascend high mountains to tempt the tempter? Or... Is it this, to feed on the acorns and grass of knowledge, and for the sake of truth to suffer hunger of soul? Or is it this, to be sick and dismiss comforters, and make friends of the deaf who never hear thy requests? Or is it this, to go into foul water when it is the water of truth, and not disclaim cold frogs and hot toads? Or is it this, to love those who despise us, and give one's hand to the phantom when it is going to frighten us? 
all these heaviest things the load-bearing spirit taketh upon itself and like the camel which when laden hasteneth into the wilderness so hasteneth the spirit into its wilderness but in the loneliest wilderness happeneth the second metamorphosis here the spirit becometh a lion freedom will capture it and lordship in its own wilderness its last lord it here seeketh hostile will it be to him and to his last god for victory will it struggle with the great dragon what is the great dragon which the spirit is no longer inclined to call lord or god thou shalt is the great dragon called but the spirit of the lion saith i will thou shalt lieth in its path sparkling with gold a scale-covered beast and on every scale glittereth golden thou shalt the values of a thousand years glitter on those scales and thus speaketh the mightiest of all dragons all the values of things glitter on me all values have already been created and all created values do i represent verily there shall be no i will any more thus speaketh the dragon my brethren wherefore is there need of the lion in the spirit why sufficeth not the beast of burden which renounceth and is reverent to create new values that even the lion cannot yet accomplish but to create itself freedom for new creating that can the might of the lion do to create itself freedom and give a holy nay even unto duty for that my brethren there is need of the lion to assume the right to new values that is the most formidable assumption for a load-bearing and reverent spirit verily under such a spirit it is praying and the work of a beast of prey as its holiest it once loved thou shalt now it is forced to find illusion and arbitrariness even in the holiest things that it may capture freedom from its love the lion is needed for this capture but tell me my brethren what the child can do which even the lion could not do why hath the praying lion still to become a child innocence is the child and forgetfulness a new beginning a game a self-rolling wheel a first movement a holy yay aye for the game of creating my brethren there is needed a holy yea unto life its own will willeth now the spirit his own world winneth the world's outcast three metamorphoses of the spirit have i designated to you how the spirit became a camel the camel a lion and the lion at last a child thus spake zarathustra and at that time he abode in the town which is called the pied cow notes by anthony m ludovici this opening discourse is a parable in which zarathustra discloses the mental development of all creators of new values it is the story of a life 
which reaches its consummation in attaining to a second ingenuousness, or in returning to childhood. Nietzsche, the supposed anarchist, here plainly disclaims all relationship whatever to anarchy, for he shows us that only by bearing the burdens of the existing law and submitting to it patiently, as the camel submits to being laden, does the free spirit acquire the ascendancy over tradition, which enables him to meet and master the dragon, thou shalt, the dragon with the values of a thousand years glittering on its scales. There are two lessons in this discourse. First, that in order to create, one must be as a little child. Secondly, that it is only through existing law and order that one attains to that height from which new law and new order may be promulgated. End of part one, chapter one. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part one, chapter two of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Academic Chairs of Virtue People commended unto Zarathustra a wise man, as one who could discourse well about sleep and virtue. Greatly was he honored and rewarded for it, and all the youths sat before his chair. To him went Zarathustra, and sat among the youths before his chair, and thus spake the wise man. Respect and modesty in presence of sleep. That is the first thing. And to go out of the way of all who sleep badly and keep awake at night. Modest is even the thief in presence of sleep. He always stealeth softly through the night. Immodest, however, is the night watchman. Immodestly he carrieth his horn. No small art is it to sleep. It is necessary for that purpose to keep awake all day. Ten times a day must thou overcome thyself. That causeth wholesome weariness and is poppy to the soul. Ten times must thou reconcile again with thyself, for overcoming is bitterness and badly sleep the unreconciled. Ten truths must thou find during the day. Otherwise wilt thou seek truth during the night, and thy soul will have been hungry. Ten times must thou laugh during the day, and be cheerful. Otherwise thy stomach, the father of affliction, will disturb thee in the night." Few people know it, but one must have all the virtues in order to sleep well. Shall I be a false witness? Shall I commit adultery? Shall I covet my neighbor's maidservant? All that would ill accord with good sleep. And even if one have all the virtues, there is still one thing needful, to send the virtues themselves to sleep at the right time, that they may not quarrel with one another, the good females, and about thee, thou unhappy one. Peace with God and thy neighbor, 
so desireth good sleep and peace also with thy neighbor's devil otherwise it will haunt thee in the night honor to the government and obedience and also to the crooked government so desireth good sleep how can i help it if power like to walk on crooked legs he who leadeth his sheep to the greenest pasture shall always be for me the best shepherd so doth it accord with good sleep many honours i want not nor great treasures they excite the spleen but it is bad sleeping without a good name and a little treasure a small company is more welcome to me than a bad one but they must come and go at the right time so doth it accord with good sleep well also do the poor in spirit please me they promote sleep blessed are they especially if one always gives in to them thus passeth the day unto the virtuous when night cometh then take i good care not to summon sleep it disliketh to be summoned sleep the lord of the virtues but i think of what i have done and thought during the day thus ruminating patient as a cow i ask myself what were thy ten overcomings and what were the ten reconciliations and the ten truths and the ten laughters with which my heart enjoyed itself thus pondering and cradled by forty thoughts it overtaketh me all at once sleep the unsummoned the lord of the virtues sleep tappeth on mine eye and it turneth heavy sleep toucheth my mouth and it remaineth open verily on soft souls doth it come to me the dearest of thieves and stealeth from me my thoughts stupid do i then stand like this academic chair but not much longer do i then stand i already lie when zarathustra heard the wise man thus speak he laughed in his heart for thereby had a light dawned upon him and thus spake he to his heart a fool seemeth this wise man with his forty thoughts but i believe he knoweth well how to sleep happy even is he who liveth near this wise man such sleep is contagious even through a thick wall it is contagious a magic resideth even in his academic chair and not in vain did the youth sit before the preacher of virtue his wisdom is to keep awake in order to sleep well and verily if life had no sense and had i to choose nonsense this would be the desirablest nonsense for me also now know i well what people sought formerly above all else when they sought teachers of virtue good sleep they sought for themselves and poppy-head virtues to promote it 
to all those belauded sages of the academic chairs. Wisdom was sleep without dreams. They knew no higher significance of life. Even at present, to be sure, there are some like this preacher of virtue, and not always so honorable. But their time is past, and not much longer do they stand. There they already lie. Blessed are those drowsy ones, for they shall soon nod to sleep. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici Almost the whole of this is quite comprehensible. It is a discourse against all those who confound virtue with tameness and smug ease, and who regard as virtuous only that which promotes security and tends to deepen sleep. End of Part 1, Chapter 2 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 1, Chapter 3 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Backworldsman Once on a time, Zarathustra also cast his fancy beyond man, like all backworldsmen. The work of a suffering and tortured god did the world then seem to me. The dream and diction of a god did the world then seem to me. Colored vapors before the eyes of a divinely dissatisfied one. Good and evil and joy and woe, and I and thou, colored vapors did they seem to me before creative eyes. The creator wished to look away from himself. Thereupon he created the world. Intoxicating joy is it for the sufferer to look away from his suffering and forget himself. Intoxicating joy and self-forgetting did the world once seem to me. This world, the eternally imperfect, an eternal contradiction's image and imperfect image, an intoxicating joy and its imperfect creator, thus did the world once seem to me. Thus, once on a time, did I also cast my fancy beyond man like all backworldsmen. Beyond man, forsooth? Ah, ye brethren, that God whom I created was human work and human madness, like all the gods. A man was he, and only a poor fragment of a man and ego. Out of mine own ashes and glow it came unto me, that phantom. And verily, it came not unto me from the beyond. What happened, my brethren? I surpassed myself, the suffering one. I carried mine own ashes to the mountains, a brighter flame I contrived for myself. And lo, thereupon the phantom withdrew from me. To me, the convalescent, would it now be suffering and torment to believe in such phantoms. Suffering would it now be to me, and humiliation. Thus speak I to backworldsmen. Suffering was it, and impotence, that created all backworlds, and the short madness of happiness which only the greatest sufferer experienceth. Weariness, 
which seeketh to get to the ultimate with one leap, with a death leap, a poor ignorant weariness, unwilling even to will any longer. That created all gods and backworlds. Believe me, my brethren, it was the body which despaired of the body. It groped with the fingers of the infatuated spirit at the ultimate walls. Believe me, my brethren, it was the body which despaired of the earth. It heard the bowels of existence speaking unto it, and then it sought to get through the ultimate walls with its head, and not with its head only, into the other world. But that other world is well concealed from man. That dehumanized, inhuman world, which is a celestial naught, and the bowels of existence do not speak unto man, except as man. Verily, it is difficult to prove all being, and hard to make it speak. Tell me, ye brethren, is not the strangest of all things best proved? Yea, this ego, with its contradiction and perplexity, speaketh most uprightly of its being, this creating, willing, evaluing ego, which is the measure and value of things, and this most upright existence, the ego. It speaketh of the body, and still implieth the body, even when it museth and raveth and fluttereth with broken wings, always more uprightly learneth it to speak, the ego. And the more it learneth, the more doth it find titles and honors for the body and the earth. A new pride taught me mine ego, and that teach I unto men, no longer to thrust one's head into the sand of celestial things, but to carry it freely, a terrestrial head which giveth meaning to the earth. A new will teach I unto men, to choose that path which man hath followed blindly, and to approve of it, and no longer to slink aside from it like the sick and perishing. The sick and perishing. It was they who despised the body and the earth, and invented the heavenly world, and the redeeming blood-drops. But even those sweet and sad poisons they borrowed from the body and the earth. From their misery they sought escape, and the stars were too remote for them. Then they sighed, Oh, that there were heavenly paths by which to steal into another existence and into happiness! Then they contrived for themselves their by-paths and bloody draughts. Beyond the sphere of their body in this earth they now fancied themselves transported, these ungrateful ones. But to what did they owe the convulsion and rapture of their transport? To their body and this earth. Gentle is Zarathustra to the sickly. Verily, he is not indignant at their modes of consolation and ingratitude. May they become convalescents and overcomers, and create higher bodies for themselves. Neither is Zarathustra indignant at a convalescent who looketh tenderly on his delusions, and at midnight stealeth round the grave of his god. But sickness 
and a sick frame remain even in his tears. Many sickly ones have there always been among those who muse and languish for God. Violently they hate the discerning ones, and the latest of virtues, which is uprightness. Backward they always gaze toward dark ages. Then, indeed, were delusion and faith something different. Raving of the reason was likeness to God, and doubt was sin. Too well do I know those godlike ones. They insist on being believed in, and that doubt is sin. Too well also do I know what they themselves most believe in. Verily, not in back worlds and redeeming blood drops, but in the body do they also believe most, and their own body is for them the thing in itself. But it is a sickly thing to them, and gladly would they get out of their skin. Therefore hearken they to the preachers of death, and themselves preach backworlds. Hearken, rather, my brethren, to the voice of the healthy body. It is a more upright and pure voice. More uprightly and purely speaketh the healthy body, perfect and square-built, and it speaketh of the meaning of the earth. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of Part 1, Chapter 3, Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part One, Chapter Four of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Despisers of the Body. To the despisers of the body will I speak my word. I wish them neither to learn afresh nor teach anew, but only to bid farewell to their own bodies, and thus be dumb. Body am I and soul so saith the child, and why should one not speak like children? But the awakened one, the knowing one, saith, Body am I entirely, and nothing more, and soul is only the name of something in the body. The body is a big sagacity, a plurality with one sense, a war and a peace, a flock and a shepherd. An instrument of thy body is also thy little sagacity, my brother, which thou callest spirit, a little instrument and plaything of thy big sagacity. Ego, sayest thou, and art proud of that word. But the greater thing, in which thou art unwilling to believe, is thy body with its big sagacity. It saith not ego, but doeth it. What the sense feeleth, what the spirit discerneth, hath never its end in itself. But sense and spirit would fain persuade thee that they are the end of all things, so vain are they. Instruments and playthings are sense and spirit. Behind them there is still the self. The self seeketh with the eyes of the senses, it hearkeneth also with the ears of the spirit. Ever hearkeneth the self, and seeketh. It compareth, mastereth, conquereth, and destroyeth. It ruleth, and is always the ego's ruler. Behind thy thoughts and feelings, my brother, there is a mighty lord, an unknown sage. 
it is called self it dwelleth in thy body it is thy body there is more sagacity in thy body than in thy best wisdom and who then knoweth why thy body requireth just thy best wisdom thyself laugheth at thine ego and its proud prancings what are these prancings and flights of thought unto me it saith to itself a byway to my purpose i am the leading string of the ego and the prompter of its notions the self saith unto the ego feel pain and thereupon it suffereth and thinketh how it may put an end thereto and for that very purpose it is meant to think the self saith unto the ego feel pleasure thereupon it rejoiceth and thinketh how it may oftentimes rejoice and for that very purpose it is meant to think to the despisers of the body will i speak a word that they despise is caused by their esteem what is it that created esteeming and despising and worth and will the creating self created for itself esteeming and despising it created for itself joy and woe the creating body created for itself spirit as a hand to its will even in your folly and despising ye each serve yourself ye despisers of the body i tell you your very self wanteth to die and turneth away from life no longer can yourself do that which it desireth most create beyond itself that is what it desireth most that is all its fervor but it is now too late to do so so yourself wisheth to succumb ye despisers of the body to succumb so wisheth yourself and therefore have ye become despisers of the body for ye can no longer create beyond yourselves and therefore are ye now angry with life and with the earth an unconscious envy is in the sidelong look of your contempt i go not your way ye despisers of the body ye are no bridges for me to the superman thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici here zarathustra gives names to the intellect and the instincts he calls the one the little sagacity and the latter the big sagacity schopenhauer's teaching concerning the intellect is fully endorsed here Quote, an instrument of thy body is also thy little sagacity my brother which thou callest spirit End quote, says zarathustra from beginning to end it is a warning to those who would think too lightly of the instincts and unduly exalt the intellect in its derivatives reason and understanding end of part 1 chapter 4 recording by john van stan savannah georgia Part One, Chapter Five of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Joys and Passions. My brother, when thou hast a virtue and it is thine own virtue, thou hast it in common with no one. To be sure, 
thou wouldst call it by name and caress it. Thou wouldst pull its ears and amuse thyself with it. And lo, then hast thou its name in common with the people, and hast become one of the people, and the herd with thy virtue. Better for thee to say, Ineffable it is, and nameless, that which is pain and sweetness to my soul, and also the hunger of my bowels. Let thy virtue be too high for the familiarity of names, and if thou must speak it, be not ashamed to stammer about it. Thus speak and stammer. That is my good, and that do I love. Thus doth it please me entirely. Thus only do I desire the good. Not as the law of a god do I desire it. Not as a human law or a human need do I desire it. It is not to be a guide-post for me to super-earths and paradises. An earthly virtue is it which I love. Little prudence is therein, and the least everyday wisdom. But that bird built its nest beside me. Therefore I love and cherish it. Now sitteth it beside me on its golden eggs. Thus shouldst thou stammer and praise thy virtue. Once hadst thou passions, and calledst them evil, but now hast thou only thy virtues. They grew out of thy passions. Thou implantest thy highest aim into the heart of those passions. Then became they thy virtues and joys. And though thou wert of the race of the hot-tempered, or of the voluptuous, or of the fanatical, or the vindictive, all thy passions in the end became virtues, and all thy devils angels. Once hadst thou wild dogs in thy cellar, but they changed at last into birds and charming songstresses. Out of thy poisons brewedst thou balsam for thyself. Thy cow, affliction, milkest thou. Now drinketh thou the sweet milk of her udder. And nothing evil groweth in thee any longer, unless it be the evil that groweth out of the conflict of thy virtues. My brother, if thou be fortunate, then wilt thou have one virtue and no more. Thus goest thou easier over the bridge. Illustrious is it to have many virtues, but a hard lot. And many a one hath gone into the wilderness and killed himself, because he was weary of being the battle and battlefield of virtues. My brother, are war and battle evil? Necessary, however, is the evil. Necessary are the envy and the distrust and the backbiting among the virtues. Lo, how each of thy virtues is covetous of the highest place. It wanteth thy whole spirit to be its herald. It wanteth thy whole power in wrath, hatred, and love. Jealous is every virtue of the others, and a dreadful thing is jealousy. Even virtues may succumb by jealousy. He whom the flame of jealousy encompasseth turneth at last like the scorpion, the poisoned sting against himself. Ah, my brother, hast thou never seen a virtue backbite and stab itself? 
man is something that hath to be surpassed and therefore shalt thou love thy virtues for thou wilt succumb by them thus spake zarathustra end of part one chapter five recording by john van stan savannah georgia